0: Tech Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English, with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 755 for the 6th of August, 2021. This week, we've heard a lot about spyware recently because it's been found on phones owned by world leaders and journalists. But they're not the only targets. And it's not just phones that are at risk. In short circuits, perhaps you've heard of medium format digital cameras and think you should upgrade to one. There are lots of technical benefits, but you might be surprised by the downsides. We are drowning in disinformation, lies, misinformation, and deepfake videos. Technological safeguards are being developed, but the best protection is still critical thinking. In spare parts, only on the website, solid-state disk drives are fast and small, but we shouldn't count mechanical drives out just yet. Some gigantic drives are on the horizon. Those who have monitors and video subsystems that support high dynamic range will enjoy improved brightness, color, and contrast when they enable it in Windows. And 20 years ago, the Internet wasn't in every restaurant, store, and coffee shop, but McDonald's had started introducing it in some stores at $6 an hour. Much has been written about spyware recently, because spyware from the NSO group has been found on smartphones owned by world leaders and journalists. It's not just phones that are at risk, though, and it's not just world leaders and journalists. It's easy, but sometimes time-consuming, to check your computer for signs of malware. I'll show a process for Windows machines today, but similar processes exist for Linux and the Mac OS. So on Windows, start by opening either the command line or PowerShell as an administrator. The command to run is netstat, which is short for netstatus, with a B switch, so netstat-B. That B switch means that netstat will display the executable involved in creating each connection or listening port. The result will be dozens, or possibly hundreds, of lines of output, so my preference is to capture the output in a text file, so I can look at it and manipulate it later. Each process that has a network connection will display two lines of code. For example, TCP 192.168.1.198, 23022, ORD38S29, in F10, colon, HTTPS, close, underscore, wait, and below that, in square brackets, google drive sync.exe. I'll explain all that in a moment. And in some cases, more than two lines will be displayed. Each line displays the protocol being used, the local address, the foreign address, and the connection state. So that line I described earlier means that an HTTP connection using the Transmission Control Protocol, or TCP, has been established between local IP address 192.168.1.198 on port 16.129 and the foreign address 72.21.81.240 by cryptservice using servicehost.exe. How's that for easy-to-understand, plain technobabble? Okay, not so much. So here's how to sort out the meaning. It's okay to ignore the protocol. The common ones are Transmission Control Protocol and User Datagram Protocol, TCP and UDP. If you'd like to know more about the protocols, I have a link to W3Schools. They have a reasonably clear explanation. The local internet protocol, or IP address, is 192.168.1.198. 192.168.1 and 192.168.0 are the most common IP ranges for home networks and some small office networks. The final three digits, 198, happens to be the local address that my computer has received from the router on the day I was testing. The port being used, 16129, is not well known, which means it's not in the first 1024 ports that are typically used for specific services. For example, 25 for Simple Mail Transfer Protocol, or SMTP, 80 for Hypertext Transfer Protocol, or HTTP, and 443 for Secure Hypertext Transfer Protocol, or HTTPS. Ports 1024 through 49151 are registered, and ports 49152 to 65535 are what are called dynamic. You'll see a lot of ports in the dynamic range. And finally, we're getting to the important part, the foreign connection. It's not unusual for that foreign connection to be on your computer. In my case, the name of the computer is laptop-fapuo6jl. That's not my name, it's what came with the computer, and I didn't ever bother to change it. In addition to the name of the computer, you might find a local IP address that starts with 192.168.1 or 192.168.0. You can ignore most of these. What you're looking for is connections outside your network by processes or executables that you don't recognize. So crypt service is using servicehost.exe to connect to 72.21.81.240. Is that good or is that bad? What is crypt service and what is servicehost.exe? The executable servicehost.exe is a common Windows application, but how do we know that? Well, Google DuckDuckGo or Bing is your friend ask what is servicehost.exe, and you'll get a list of responses from sites such as LifeWire, HowToGeek, File.net, Should I Block It, and more. Some of the sites that appear in the search can be a bit dodgy. To be safe, don't click any of the links that offer to fix your computer, just gather information about the application. This one is easy. Svchost.exe or service host is a file that's an important system process provided by Microsoft in Windows operating systems. Under normal circumstances, the service host file isn't a virus but a critical component for a number of Windows services. That information is from LifeWire, and there's a link to it on the TechBiter worldwide website, and you'll find links to other references as I mention them. So, we now know that a valid Windows process is being used, but what about CryptService, C-R-Y-P-T-S-V-C? Return to your preferred search engine and ask, what is Crypt Service? The process known as Cryptographic Services belongs to the Microsoft Windows operating system. The genuine CryptService.dll Windows Cryptographic Services library module resides in C colon backslash Windows backslash system32 that's information from file.net. Well, now we know that we have a Windows process using a Windows service to connect to 72.21.81.240. It is clear that this is not spyware, but what if you get to this point and you still have questions? It's easy to find out who owns that IP address. Visit whois.com and type the IP address into the Whois box at the top of the page. This IP address is owned by Verizon. That seems like an awful lot of work, and checking every connection would be beyond tedious. Checking every connection isn't necessary, though. I already recognize Adobe CEF Helper.exe, Code42Desktop.exe, Code42Service.exe, Dreamweaver.exe, Outlook.exe, OneDrive.exe, Spotify.exe, Google DriveSync.exe, and MSEdge.exe. So there's no need to check those. That leaves a few to be checked, and it will take a while. But once you've done this and you have a list of known safe files and processes, you won't have to look them up again, only any new ones you find. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll find references and explanations for about a dozen additional files and services. And if you follow the links, you'll see what I saw. If you find spyware, it can be removed using a well-documented process on WikiHow. Before proceeding, though, scroll to the bottom of the article and read the warnings. It is important to create a restore point so you can get back to the original configuration if you accidentally uninstall something that's essential. But to avoid having to do that, make sure that whatever you're uninstalling really is spyware. And be sure to download applications listed in the WikiHow article only from legitimate websites, because rogue sites that promise to remove malware and spyware can actually install more. And if you'd like to learn more about the NSO software incidents, the Guardian newspaper has an organized and detailed explanation on its website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, when film was king, the highest quality images were created by professionals who used cameras that accepted sheet film. One sheet at a time. 8 by 10 inches, 5 by 7 inches, or 4 by 5 inches. A photographer might spend two or three hours setting up an image and then expose just one or two sheets of film. For portrait and wedding work, medium format cameras were common, they used 120 and 220 roll film that took 12 or 24 square images per roll. Non-square options also existed. Wedding photographers eventually migrated to 35 millimeter single-lens reflex cameras. And then digital cameras changed everything. Smartphone cameras are probably the most used cameras these days, but digital SLRs and mirrorless cameras are still popular choices, Camera manufacturers have started offering digital medium-format cameras. Maybe you're thinking about buying one. There are several things to keep in mind if you are. Medium-format cameras are larger, heavier, and more expensive. Medium-format lenses are larger, heavier, and more expensive. A lens marked 50mm that would be normal on a 35mm camera and a slight telephoto lens on an APS-C digital SLR camera would be a wide-angle lens on a medium format camera. If you're a fan of shallow depth of field, you will be delighted by a medium format camera, but you'll be unpleasantly surprised if you like greater depth of field common on cameras with smaller sensors. Medium-format image files are massive, sometimes exceeding 100 megapixels. This is wonderful for reproducing extreme detail, but you will need correspondingly large amounts of storage. The computer you're using now to edit digital images from a smartphone or a digital SLR might get bogged down when you're editing a medium-format digital image, so you might need a new computer. Dynamic range will be much greater and noise will be much less on a medium format camera than on an APS-C digital SLR and both will be much better than on a smartphone camera and other devices with tiny sensors. Medium format cameras are slower than smaller cameras and burst rates will be more limited because these cameras have to process so much more data. Medium-format digital cameras exist for a reason. So do APS-C and full-frame digital SLRs. So do mirrorless digital cameras and smartphone cameras. What's important is not the size of the camera, but the photographer's eye to compose an image and the photographer's brain to choose the right equipment for the job. If disinformation wasn't bad enough, we now have deepfake videos that can appear to be legitimate and real. The camera doesn't lie was never true, but now it's even easier to lie. Do you think you can spot a fake? Fakery isn't new. Some Civil War era photographs were manipulated. Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin ordered people to be removed from photographs after they had been liquidated for disloyalty. In those days, images had to be manipulated manually. In the early days, by being cut and reassembled, the Soviets added airbrushing. These weren't changes that could be made quickly or easily, and they required experts. Computer-based image and video editing makes the process much easier and faster. Some of the work we see is amateurish and easy to spot as a fake, but some is virtually impossible to tell from reality. Big companies such as Adobe and Microsoft are attempting to create ways to identify fake videos and images, but these are probably doomed to failure. They will fail not because the technology isn't good enough, but because some people are willing to be fooled. Those who are willing to think critically about photos and videos found on the Internet are likely to be more accurate defenders of truth than all the technological defenses. There is no proof that he ever said it, but Mark Twain, probably the most misquoted person on the Internet, is credited with saying... A lie travels around the globe while the truth is putting on its shoes. Or maybe a lie can travel halfway around the world before the truth can get its boots on. Well, although those are accurate statements, it's pretty unlikely that Twain said them. The quotation is usually dated 1919, and that would be remarkable because Twain died on the 21st of April, 1910. Microsoft, the BBC... CBC, Radio Canada, and the New York Times are promoting technology that embeds GPS information about where a photograph was taken, along with some other security devices in the file, to make it impossible for someone to alter the image or video without the change being detected. Yeah, impossible until somebody figures out how to break the process. And somebody will. Adobe's actions address images used for editorial purposes by news organizations so that the source of an image or video can be documented. Microsoft offers an online quiz you can take to determine how good you are at identifying fakes. Just 10 questions takes only a few minutes. You'll find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I got 9 of 10 right, but one of those, I have to admit, was simply a coin toss. The primary takeaway from the quiz is that we should all think critically about what we see and read creators of manipulative deep fakes and other media the accompanying text says often try to trigger people to think with their heart instead of their head one of the best things to do is monitor how you are responding emotionally to a video or photo and if you have a strong response Ask yourself why the creator of the media might want you to feel that way. We are drowning these days in a sea of lies designed to create disunity. Are we smarter than the manipulators? I hope so. You won't drown in lies while reading spare parts. Load the Techbiter Worldwide website, scroll down, and this week you'll find these articles. Solid-state disk drives are fast and small, but we shouldn't count mechanical drives out just yet. Some gigantic drives are on the horizon. Those who have monitors and video subsystems that support high dynamic range will enjoy improved brightness, color, and contrast when they enable it in Windows. And 20 years ago, the Internet wasn't in every restaurant, store, and coffee shop. But McDonald's had started introducing it in some stores at $6 an hour. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.